Thank you, my friend. Yes, hey, sorry to you Zoom folks. I moved the I moved the podium forward for myself and you didn't get to see the top of Daniel's head, which is quite gorgeous. So sorry about that. But you can see all of my head because I'm that much shorter. So good morning. Hey, this morning uh, we are in Judges chapter 9 and I've invited Trev, a new friend, to come. Trev and I had lunch with each other this week and so he and his family have been coming to Orchards only since when? About a month and a half. Ago. Okay, a couple of months. So I have never seen the man without a mask. So I'm sitting in the restaurant waiting to have lunch with him, and he comes in the door, and I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not and sure. And I was late. So oh, and you were late. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I was a little confused. Fortunately, it was a small restaurant, not a lot of people coming in, but anyway. And that goes for some of the rest of you. Like, hey, it's good to see your face. <laughs> good to see the rest of you. So anyway, Abimelech. He's going to read for us, but before he does, I want to set this up. So, some of you asked me, and I certainly asked this of God, why is this story in here? There's some hard stories already. First of all, Abimelech is not even a judge. He's not a judge. So, everyone we've talked about so far have been judges, so you've got to switch gears here. He is not a judge. In fact, he's actually the son of a judge. He's actually a son of Gideon, so in another way, this is actually Gideon part four. But we know that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And so we know and believe that this passage is for our edification, our learning as well. And so we're going to jump into it with that belief. And uh, here's where the story comes from. His story is a spinoff of the other judges' stories. So in Judges chapter 8, we read this last week. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon had this part right for sure. Every judge served the people only for a season and then stepped back down so that the people would always be looking to Yahweh for leadership. They would know that Yahweh was the king of the people of Israel. The judges only served for a time. However, Gideon's sons heard this differently. And they liked this idea of leadership. And so um, we met one son last week. His name was Jether. Remember, he was with Gideon when Gideon slayed the kings that were from this area of Shechem. He even asked his son to slay them, and the son was too young and too afraid. By the time this story comes around, by the time we get to Abimelech, Gideon has 70 sons. So it's been some years. He also has multiple wives, so I'm sure it speeded up the process. He also had a slave that he had a son with. And that son, not of a wife, but of a slave from another country's name was Abimelech. And that gives you a bit of a clue about where we're starting out. So uh, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Judges chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be reading the first 20 verses here. So take it away, Trev. All right. Next page here. All right, Judges chapter 9, 1 through 20. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and all of his mother's clan, ask the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have the 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. They gave 
him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-bareth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and, one of the, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped, from, escaped by hiding. Then the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo uh, gathered at, beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up to the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, Come be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, Come be our king. But the vine, vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans, to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, Come be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father brought, fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith with Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you. The citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let the fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Yeah, that's only 20 of 45 verses. We're going to stop there because it only gets worse. <laughs> and because we only have 30 minutes this morning. But you begin to get a taste of what's happening. So some background to help you. This is what would be super helpful to know if you were a, a Jew, a part of the nation of Israel. Some things you would have known so that this story makes more sense. First of all, Jerubbaal is a nickname for Gideon. It's a name that was given to him by the locals there. Uh, actually by his family, one who contends with Baal. Baal was a god or a, or a pseudo-god, an idol, and he was one who contended with him. So every time you heard Jerub Baal, it was a reference to Gideon. Secondly, you heard about Shechem. Shechem has a bunch of history. And remember a few weeks ago, Daniel talked about the importance of places. Theologically for God, certain places have a ton of meaning. That's definitely true of Shechem, so I want to set you up with that. So first of all, Shechem is a place where Abraham stopped. Abraham was far away in the land of the Chaldeans, and his father and himself and some of their families made a migration to Aram, which is quite a ways north of Israel, due north of Israel. 
and they stayed in a town there, which eventually became named after his father, Haran. But his father never left the town. And so when God called Abraham into the promised land, the land God promised him, he brought him through that land. And when he got about halfway down through that territory, God met him at Shechem, at this place. And he said to Abraham, this is the land I'm going to give to you. You're standing in the middle of it. Look around. All of this land will belong to you and to your family. And so in that place, he set up an altar to worship God. And he uh, presented a sacrifice to God. And he did it near this tree, this oak of Mamre, which is a very significant tree. So this first introduction is Shechem is a good place. Three generations later, something quite different happened. You remember that there are 12 sons of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's the one with the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. He also had a daughter among those 12 sons. Anybody know the daughter's name? Dinah, absolutely, good job. Dinah was her name. There was a young man and his name was Shechem and that's where the town actually gets his, its name is from this man Shechem. He wanted this woman and he actually sexually violated this woman and then asked the family if he could marry this woman. And these brothers were good loving brothers and they wanted to avenge their sister. And so they made this agreement with the men of the city of Shechem that if you will all be circumcised as we are, then we will be a part of your family and you can have our sister and we will be one people. But they used that as an invitation for these men to get a little surgery and be incapacitated for a couple of days. And then they went through the town and they slaughtered all the men of Shechem. Very different. Remember, God had said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all nations. And this is the opposite of that. These men were not blessed so that they could be a curse to nations. Granted, it was a difficult situation. So first, it was a place of worship and a place of promise. And now in this second episode, it's a place of revenge. And it's a place of godlessness. Now, when finally the nation of Israel returns from Egypt and they cross over the Jordan River, they end up at Shechem. Shechem is actually in a valley between two hills. And this is the place where Joshua had the law read again to the nation of Israel. Hey, we're finally here. We are finally in the land. It's time to really press in and obey the word of God and fulfill the will of Yahweh. And so you may remember this story, but half of the tribes were sent up one hill the hill of um, Ebal, and the other half were sent up the hill called Gerizim. And from Gerizim, 12 tribes read the blessings of God. If you obey me and you do what I command you, this is what's going to happen. And then on the other hill, the hill of Ebal, the curses were shared. If you disobey me and if you worship other gods, this is what will happen. So Shechem became that day a place of choosing. And God was saying to the nation of Israel, you have a choice. You can follow me. You can obey me, you can be my people, and we can bring blessing to this land, or you can do the opposite. So a choice was given. I'll read for you from Joshua 24. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. There's a reference to uh, the experience of Abraham near this same oak tree. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us 
It has heard all the words of the Lord and the words that we have said. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. And so this was the beginning of the occupation of the land. And now we come to Shechem one more time. And this again is is much later in the story. And uh, we read this. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great oak tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Is this a good thing, a blessing, or is this a curse? Is this a bad thing? I've got one brave young man whispering, bad thing. (laughs) Thank you. I see a couple of thumbs. All right. This is not good. What has the voice of God said about this? That's right. Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. There was no prophet leaning into God. The people weren't asking, God, what is your will? God, who should lead us? They weren't even calling for a rescuer, which is how all the other judges stepped forward. They were in trouble, and they said, God, rescue us. Deliver us from these other peoples. None of that was going on. This was simply human activity apart from God. God was not involved. There was no prayer. There was no prophecy. There wasn't even really a need being spoken for leadership. But Abimelech knew the story. He knew that the people wanted a king. And so despite his father's wishes and his father's beliefs, he wanted to seize that. And he knew that there were 70 other brothers who stood in the way because he was a half-son of Gideon. The 70 brothers were full sons of Gideon and of his wives, of the family of Gideon. And so in one day, he had some scoundrels execute all of his brothers. And that didn't even happen where they were. The scripture said, as Trev read, that happened up in Ophrah, which is 25 miles away. So Shechem um, hatched this plot, and then he hired these men, and then they traveled on foot or probably on horseback 25 miles to go to the home of his father and in one day to execute these 70 brothers. It's a horrible, horrible story. And yet it happened, and, in, and we need to know why. Finally, you remember Mount Gerizim? Which was the Mount of Cursing and which was the Mount of Blessing? Which one was Mount Gerizim? The Mount of Blessing. And this is so ironic. First of all, this 70th son who actually escaped execution, Jotham, has run himself all the way down to Shechem, 25 miles, maybe he rode a horse as well, and he goes to this mountain. Generations ago, his ancestors, he was part of the tribe that was to go to Mount Gerizim. He was a part of the tribe that was to announce a blessing. And instead, what does he do? He announces a curse. He actually announces both. And he says this. He says, if you people of Shechem have acted honorably and in good faith, may Abimelech be your joy. This is a blessing. And may you be his too. But we know the sarcasm in all that he's saying because it's already happened. But if you have not acted honorably and in good faith, Let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and the house of Milo. And let fire come from you, the citizens of Shechem and house of Milo, and consume Abimelech. The rest of chapter 9 is all the detail in the outworking of this curse, because this is exactly what happens. So he's saying to these people, if what you've done is right, may God bless you, and may you find joy in the leadership of this man. But if what you have done is wrong, then may he destroy you, and may you destroy him. And that's exactly what happened. It only took three years, 
and they turned on one another. And the rest of the story is about trickery and revenge and sides and murder. And eventually, under Shechem, who wanted to lead the people, he murdered 70 men in order to leave a city, lead a city. And then four years later, he murders everyone in the city. That doesn't make any sense. Wasn't he for these people? Didn't he want to lead them well? No, he didn't. And we could speculate, and we might even be right about this story. This is a man who was the son of a slave woman whose father had other wives and a bunch of other sons, and he probably was not a part of the good side of the story of this family. There probably was within him a lot of wounding and a lot of anger and clearly a lot of revenge. But do you remember how last week ended when we talked about Gideon and the fact that he took the authority God gave him and he went and he accomplished the will of God, but then what happened? Remember, he went beyond the will of God and he chose the authority that he had been given to work out some of his own justice. He justly removed the Midianites from the land, but he unjustly punished Israelites who didn't help him along the way. And he unjustly took revenge on others who had murdered his own family. And it's in this context of multiple wives and multiple sons and authority not only spent for the will of God, but spent for his own righteousness that this young man grew up. You can almost begin to understand, just with those couple of clues, what would drive this young man to make the choices that he's made. And then the end of the chapter ends this way. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came to all of them. So in this difficult and ugly and inhumane story, a sovereign God is still at work. He is judging. He is rewarding those who love others well and who obey him and follow him. But he's bringing an end to those who don't obey him and who are unloving and are inhumane and really bringing justice to the land. These are horrifying people and they needed to be removed for the sake of the generations that would follow. How did Israel get here? From where we started with Joshua bringing them into the land and, then, and them saying from the beginning of the book, we will do everything the Lord has commanded to this place. How did they get here? How did they get here? In one generation, they went from, I will not rule over you, nor will my sons rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you, to crowning a revengeful murderer, making him king, and then being murdered by that king. In this place called Shechem, and in the family of Gideon, two strongholds had been established. Let me give you a definition of the term stronghold. A stronghold is a place where authority is given for certain actions. It's a place where something has been given permission. This can be a human reality, but it's also a reality in the spiritual realm. And so we read about strongholds throughout the scriptures. The will of God was to establish a stronghold for good in Israel. What God had wanted was for this people to grow and to obey the laws and to love each other well and to set up an exceptional civilization of humans who are humane and of humans who are loving and be an example to the rest of the world, blessed to be a blessing. That's what they were called to. But instead, 
they allow a stronghold of revenge to take place. And remember, this is why God had called them to keep themselves pure, to remove everyone from the land, because what they do, you will want to do. Don't marry them, because who they worship, you will want to worship. You will want to be as they are. And all the things that Yahweh said have come true. And here they are in these strongholds. Abraham established Shechem as a place of blessing. Abraham's grandsons made Shechem a place of cursing and revenge. Joshua declared Shechem a place of choosing blessing or curses. Gideon chose to make it a place of revenge. And Abimelech took revenge to another level. This is the story of Shechem. And again, the book, the chapter ends, thus God repaid the, the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 sons. God also made the people of Shechem pay for their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them all. Oh. <laughs> okay. Where is the wisdom in this chapter? Where is the help for us as people of God in the story of Abimelech? I think we often <clears throat> consider our own sin and our own falling short of what God calls us to, to a place of maybe mediocrity or shallowness. And I believe that one of the things we learn from Abimelech is it doesn't stop there. When we choose to go not the way of God, it can seem benign at first, and it can seem like just a small mistake or even a fail, but it's a road and it's a trajectory. And in those practices, we are creating strongholds in our own lives, either strongholds of place or strongholds of family. Think about your own family, and I'm sure some of you have history with this, and you know, yeah, my family has this kind of a stronghold. If stronghold is a word you struggle with, let's use the word tendency. I think we can create tendencies toward godliness and tendencies towards sin, tendencies towards love and tendencies towards not loving. What is, what is a potential stronghold in, in family that you may know of? Anybody? Alcohol, a really common tendency, at least in our culture, a stronghold of alcohol. And within a person who's there, there's this idea that I know it's not good right now, but I won't always be here. And someday I'm going to get out of this, and someday it's going to get better. And then someday goes by, and another day goes by, and another day goes by, and years later, I'm still there. I'm still there. Someday hasn't come. And in that regard, this, we, come, we come in submission to a stronghold, and we just basically say, this is the rule of my life. This is my identity. This is what I am committed to, even though I hate it. This is the stronghold of my life. Often, strongholds are given by the misuse of authority. And that's what happened here. Gideon had been given tremendous authority for the sake of Israel to purify the land as God had called him to do. But as he possessed that authority, he went beyond the will of God. And he went beyond what he had been instructed to do. And he was like, well, while I have a little power and while I have some influence, I'm going to take care of some things that I want taken care of. And really what he brought into the story was his own justice. 
he mixed what he considered to be just and right. I have been, my family has been murdered. These people of Israel did not feed my troops as we came through. It is justice for me to punish them. And this is what authority does to us. It makes us drunk to what is true and what is not true. I believe this is what's happening right now in Ukraine under Putin. Putin is drunk with authority. And he has this concept that he's been given authority and rulership to bring justice however he chooses to define it. And he defines it in some crazy, crazy ways. But we can't do anything about Putin. We can pray. But what can we do locally? Where are we at with this idea of strongholds? Am I, by the authority I've been given as a husband or as a father or a friend or a pastor, am I giving authority to strongholds here in my family or here in this community? And what about you? Where do you have authority in relationships? With a friend, over a child, over a community? Where are you a leader? And think for a minute, how am I using that leadership or that authority? I'm being trusted by others to lead. Am I leading toward love or am I leading toward self-righteousness, self-justice, how I define justice? Several years ago, I was thinking through and praying through this idea of authority, and I have a definition that keeps working for me. And I, I would say that one way to look at authority from the divine perspective is that authority is leverage to love. Authority is leverage to love. If a leader is coming as one who is created in the image of God, God has the authority he has for one purpose, and that is to love. God says, I am love. Jesus said, this is my whole commandment. Everything my father ever said is summed up in these words love one another. So when we use authority well, we use it to love. So when we have it, we say, what does it look like for me to love Tricia, for me to love my children and my grandchildren, for me to love you as a congregation? And how can I use whatever authority I have to speak to you, to love you, to serve you, to make sure that all of it, I am loving you, and that I am never using that authority to get from you. I'm never using it as leverage to gain something for myself. And this is what the disciples constantly wrestled with. They said, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? And he knows that's that spirit of authority for the sake of myself. Where will I get recognition? Where will I have power? At what level will I sit in the kingdom of God as a ruler? He said, the Gentiles lord it over you. They lord authority over you. They want to use authority to build a life for themselves and to build a life around themselves rather than to build a life for others. And, and man, for me, this is what I long to see because we don't see it very much. We see authority even within the church. We've watched pastor after pastor over the last several decades use the authority and the influence and the connections he had to serve himself, to serve his ego, to serve his own desires, to serve his own image. And he didn't start out that way. I bet you every one of those men and some women as well started out with the greatest of intentions. They loved God. They loved people. They believed they were called. They started in a humble place, and they loved really well. But we don't handle authority very well. It is intoxicating. Literally, it makes us drunk. 
Even David, who handled authority so well, when he wasn't thinking of others, he was thinking of himself, saw this beautiful woman on a rooftop a few rows over. I'm going to use my authority to fulfill my own desire. And what devastation it brought. What devastation it brought. He lost sons, many sons from that episode. And his power shifted. And by the end of Solomon's reign, Israel was split in two. It was the beginning of a stronghold of brokenness. So again, let's, let's look at ourselves and let's consider ourselves. How am I doing? Am I establishing strongholds of love? Am I establishing strongholds of faith? Am I establishing strongholds of peace by who I am? Or am I participating in strongholds of anger or brokenness or self-serving or revenge? Let me end here with these words from Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, you idiot, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We go wrong very, very slowly. It's just one day at a time, and it's just one step at a time. The good news is Jesus has come to deliver us from there. I love what Father, Grandfather John the Apostle says in his final letter <clears throat> in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He really boils down life to two things. We tend to put people in all kinds of categories, and he says there's actually just two categories for humanity, those that love and those that hate. And again, I know I'm like, man, I think there's some middle ground, John. I think there's something in the middle. Isn't there kind of some people that just kind of like some people? and then some people who kind of don't like certain people. And he's saying at the end of his life, no, there are two kinds of people. Either you love or you hate. Either you love or you hate. What's the trajectory for you? What's the stronghold in your life? And what's the trajectory for us, orchards? Are we on track to be a people of love? Are we on track to be a people of unity? Are we on track to use any authority, any influence we have to love others well? I think we're on a good track. I mean, as I look at your faces, I know you want what God wants. <laughs> I think we could all agree. And I would ask that we use the rest of this worship time and especially the rest of this Lenten season to really kind of evaluate how am I doing in my contribution to the community of orchards? And how am I doing within my family? Am I a part of establishing a stronghold of unity and love and grace and forgiveness and joy and healing? Or am I a part of creating strongholds of strife or division or hatred or even just apathy? Again, this is good news because the choice we make, we make every day. So no matter what you chose yesterday, it kind of doesn't matter today. But what will you choose today? What will you choose tomorrow? 
And as we move forward into this new season, what will we choose? Will we let the remnants of the last couple of years and frustrations around whatever carry forward into tomorrow and the next day? We will, will we allow strongholds to have been established through COVID of brokenness or apathy or judgment? Or will we welcome the reign of Jesus Christ? And will we reach for and push for love and unity and being a place of grace and truth? I know we're going to choose right. <laughs> I know we're going to choose right. But let's deliberately choose because we have a choice. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we receive the story of Abimelech as a very clear example of where not to go and how not to lead and how not to treat brothers and fathers. And Jesus, we praise you that you have given us in your death and resurrection a hope to be a different kind of people. And God, we pray today for a change in the heart of Vladimir Putin. Father, I know that in your sovereignty, you're like you did to Pharaoh, just keeping him well established in his evil and in what he's doing. But we pray for mercy, Lord Jesus. We ask you to change that. We pray that you might open eyes that are so deeply blind and cause a man who uses power for his own purposes, to use power for the purposes of his people. And we trust you, sovereign God, with that story. And today, as we begin to worship, we just ask you to speak to us, God. Help us consider today and throughout the rest of this Lenten season, what track are we on? Am I building strongholds of love, hope, faith? Strongholds within my family, with my spouse, with my roommate of trust and kindness and patience. That's what we want, God. Would you help us see any stronghold that is not from you and give us the grace and power to walk away from it and to discontinue going in that direction? And would you lead us each individually and together as a community and as households to create strongholds of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who is full of grace and truth. We praise you for the future that you've prepared for us. And we ask you to lead us into the immediate future of your mission of establishing strongholds of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.